You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. The following spy cast is from an extraordinary conversation I had a few years ago with Kofor Black, the former director of CIA's Counterterrorism Center. Since today is the anniversary of 9-11, we felt it was particularly appropriate to replay it today for you. We're joined today by Kofor Black, who's a former CIA operations officer who served six foreign tours and field management positions. He worked throughout Africa in places like Zambia, Somalia, South Africa, and Zaire. In 1993, he moved to Sudan, where he served as CIA station chief until 1995, when he was named the Task Force Chief in the Near East and South Asia Division. From June of 98 through June of 99, he served as a Deputy Chief of the Latin American Division. In June of 1999, CIA Director George Tenet named Cobra Black the Director of the CIA's Counterterrorist Center, where he served until 2002. This is when he became the U.S. Department of State's Ambassador-at-Large for Counterterrorism. He held this position until November 2004, when he ended his extraordinary career in government. Thank you, Cooper Black, for taking the time to talk to us on SpyCast. It's a real pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. So a question I ask the former practitioners, usually across the board, is we do have a lot of people out there who are students, who are grad students, thinking about a career in intelligence, is why did you make the decision to go into CIA? There's obviously a lot of opportunities elsewhere. What drove you to the CIA in the first place? Well, you have to remember um, when I was essentially graduating from college in the very early 70s, that was still the active Cold War period. Um, we were facing things such as mass annihilation and all the intelligence and assessments of the current day reflecting back on that period. Um, this country in a full exchange would have been a wasteland. Uh, I thought it was, um, would be an excellent way to spend one's life trying to prevent such an event ever happening. And you had various options. I actually thought about being in the, in the Air Force but, you know, being on alert in a B-52, waiting for the thing that you feared to happen, was um, not exactly my ideal. I thought it'd be, um, uh, you know, the best way I could serve not only the United States, but also um, the planet, would be to be an intelligence officer and collect intelligence when provided to decision makers would help them, hopefully, to make the best decision possible. What was then a very dangerous world 
where the price of failure was absolute um, annihilation. Well, that's a really interesting segue to my next question was, at the time you shifted over to counterterrorism, it wasn't like it is today where it's almost a natural path to upper management. What led you to move into the field of counterterrorism? Because you know, you're now considered one of the world's most renowned experts on this, and you certainly were at the time you had the CTC, but it wasn't necessarily the sexy career path for people within CIA at the time you shifted over to CT. Well, first of all, um, my specialty is in, in intelligence operations, espionage, spying, stealing secrets, and that's what uh, I spent uh, my time trying to hone my craft doing that securely, effectively, and well. Um, I particularly was interested in Africa for a lot of personal reasons, so I spent a majority of my early career in Africa, which is the best incubator to learn your trade. Um, you have countries in, uh, in crisis. You uh, have situations of tremendous ambiguity. Uh, you have to be very agile, think on the spot, and in places like that, um, uh, authorities push down to a lower level than you might find in other more well-developed mm -hmm. places on Earth. We used to have a joke that you don't want to go to places as an opera or a subway system. <laughs> okay, So I sort of specialized in, in that for a while. Um, so that was the trend I was on. And there were various aspects of this paramilitary and espionage, to some counterterrorism as I went along. But what sort of in, um, you know, deflected me more and more into the counterterrorism field, while I was, whereas I had done some, was my assignment in Khartoum, Sudan. In those days, that was the way I described the Super Bowl of counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. You had every terrorist group. They were there in Legion. We were few. They were many. It was the perfect place for an intelligence officer, and I think certainly for the size of our force, we did very well. These were extremely well-trained people. And we were, um, I think, very successful. We spent uh, some of our time with these terrorist groups focusing on uh, um, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and all that, so a lot of the initial information that we have on uh, him and them was collected by my folk and I in Khartoum. So with that, um, and there were some noteworthy events that had been made public, right. I sort of, sort of went off on this track a little bit uh, and continued on, except for the one year where I was Deputy Chief of Latin American Division. In my case, it was more, to I think, um, a vetting process and a training process to to fulfill that um, that function, which is largely administrative. It's get used like to when that. a military officer does staff work at some point on their way. Think to of it agenda. like yeah. that. In my case, and my yeah. my grand success was to when I chaired staff meetings was to get all the officers Latin American division to stop speaking Spanish and speak English <laughs> so I could understand them. So there's an element to that. So uh, and then from there I went, of course, into the counterterrorism center and that was you know, the full-time ride. Yeah. During the time uh, in Sudan, and um, you mentioned that a lot of interesting things happened, but there's two that I want to talk about very quickly just to give mm -hmm. the audience an idea of your time there. Uh, th you said you, this is really one of your first experiences with bin Laden and it was so much to the point you did such a good job that I, he tried to assassinate you while you were there, at least his people did. Yes. Uh, I mean, as far as I'm aware, he, didn't, he, he was personally not there, yeah. but his people definitely were, and he didn't live too far away. Yeah. Um, again, our mission there was to collect intelligence. It was to collect and not take action. People watch too many movies. Right. You know? I mean, our job was to get information. We'd write reports and send that home. Uh, of course, we had to... We had to uh, um, exhibit very um, extreme cases of security awareness and precautions and preparations if something went bad. 
that having been put aside, it was the collection of information. And um, I believe that we were sufficiently successful at that, as well as some events that um, happened during that time period. One notably was the, um, the location, the finding and fixing and rendition of uh, the then most wanted international terrorist, Gilich Ramirez Sanchez, Carlos the Jackal, right. who that sent um, uh, real reverberations around the terrorist community in Khartoum, the thinking being that, gee, you know, if someone like this can be spirited off from our midst, and um, there was a collusion between um, the French government and the Sudanese government on this issue. What is their status? So, right. and um, anyway, in this mix, uh, the uh, the Americans um, and uh, myself and our people were seen as a threat, and so they wanted to um, um, dissuade us from being aggressive. Right. You know, which um, <laughs> uh, might work in some place. It definitely didn't work with us. Right. You know, I mean, we um, we were twenty four seven doing this. This is our job. We're really good at it. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just you know, like they were good, but they weren't good enough. But basically, they were um, they were training and practicing for an activity against me, and uh, it was fascinating to watch. We loved doing this, right? We're right. intelligence officers. We collect information, so you know, keep keep tracking it and tracking it and collecting information people and how they're doing it, how they're positioned, what they're going to do. And then, uh, then we, we finally decided they were getting too close and that we should probably do something about it before something unfortunate happened. And from that point, it degraded into you know, high-speed chases and the like. But the, um, the, um, the idea was to um, assassinate or blow up one of the two. You know. How much at this point was bin Laden and al-Qaeda on your radar? I mean, you, you knew who they were back in yeah, the I, Afghan war. Yeah, actually, quite a bit. Okay. You know, and um, uh, this is a great opportunity to give a little bit of insight. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Google is great, but there are a lot of people saying uh, a lot of things are inaccurate, and then people repeat it. Absolutely. So I feel um, it's unfortunate for the interested reader. Sometimes they get a little, little bit um, astray. But no, we were very actively uh, involved in that. I would say in that time, the number one priority is set by the State Department um, for collection in that era was Hezbollah, right? Because 1983, they'd killed the Marines, and uh, so Hezbollah had killed more Americans than anybody else. So for that very reason, they were number two, and Al Qaeda was a bit lower. But even with that, um, we spent uh, a significant amount of uh, effort, resources, and time um, collecting on um, Al Qaeda. Um, certainly in Khartoum, other people elsewhere were doing it. Uh, but we had the uh, we, we had such a target-rich environment. Our effort was very productive. We were interested in everything, right. everything the guy did. I mean, he had commercial companies, he had earth movers, he had training camps, and you know. Um, but the thinking at the time then was, or the national estimate was, that uh, he was more a financier than anything else. Well, you know, when you conduct. Uh, uh, um, Assassination attempts and moving up against that that's a little bit more in the financier in my book. But this held this held sway, I and mean, it's a whole different subject to talk about. But um, um, our our collection was uh, comprehensive, and we, we had a very good idea of, of what we could do. Sorry, you were you were talking about you know collecting against Bin Laden. I'm wondering, even if you had known exactly where he was, even if you had known that he was a little bit 
more than a financier. Did you have the authority at the time to do anything about it? Well, Vince, I mean, I use language if we knew where he was. Vince, this is the Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> we knew where he was. Okay. We knew where his people were. And we, we had a pretty, um, were able to produce pretty comprehensive information on this. Um, but again, our mission at that time, and certainly before 9-11, was to collect um, intelligence, was not to take action um, against him. And so, so that's the mode we were in, collect information and pass it along. You, you, you took over the counterterrorism center essentially in between the attacks on the African embassies in 1998 and the bombing of the U.S.'s coal, the attack on the U.S.'s coal in 2000. And I read your, your congressional testimony you gave after 9-11, yeah. uh, where you talked about what you've already mentioned a little bit, that al-Qaeda was not necessarily a principal counterterrorism target in the early and mid-90s about Hezbollah and other things. Did the embassy bombings begin to change our perception about the dangers behind al-Qaeda and bin Laden, or was it the coal, or was it even 9-11 that finally changed things? And maybe that's a too open-ended question. Let me kind of bring this back. Was there a disconnect between the CTC and policymakers about when bin Laden became, you know... Well, that's easier to answer. That's a really way to yeah, that's Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. There was a tremendous disconnect. Um, and... I don't think it will surprise anyone in your audience that those who are closest to the flame feel the heat. So if your job is 24-7 to um, collect intelligence and, and, and write assessments on Al-Qaeda, and have the, all the information before you, and this is all you do, mm -hmm. then you have a probably pretty uh, more exacting view, and you're more emotionally engaged in this. So and I think the farther away from that one is, the more it becomes disparate, removed, not as important, particularly when competing against other priorities. Right. Right. I mean, you have to remember that the, the, uh, the policymakers are responsible for a lot of things. So um, the threat represented by Al Qaeda was faithfully passed on and briefed, and uh, in, in it was in an escalatory nature towards 9 11, increasing sort of like a hockey stick after a while. Um, but one of the, I've never hear, heard it put this way, actually, but um, in the end, an intelligence officer has to change the thinking of the policymaker. I don't think they were taught me this. In, yeah, in, no, that's in, not something you In school, about, yeah. okay? So in the end, you can collect all the great intelligence that you, that you can, and you analyze it, you write an assessment, and you give it to the policymakers. But if it does not change their thinking, one can make an argument it's almost a waste of time. Yeah. Right? So the ability to change someone's thinking is dependent upon the quality of the information, how it's presented, and how essentially how convincing you are. But it's, it can be a hard sell right. when the recipient, the policymaker, really has no personal experience with terrorism or this new terrorist threat, where they're seized with other issues. Perhaps they've come into the administration who's just recently arrived and, and they have other priorities. So um, it's kind of a seesaw. Right. And you have to do the best you can and sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. Well, I do have to say, after researching this, uh, and I've done it for a while, but even more so looking at some of your congressional testimony, I, I'm very impressed by the extraordinary work you did. It's going to sound like I'm, plague, I'm, not, I'm not pandering. 
because of the fact that you did so much with so few. I mean, the, the personnel or lack of personnel resources that the CTC had was pretty extraordinary before 9-11. You're talking about three infantry companies worth yeah. of personnel. It, it, it's, at, it's, at the time, um, I was surprised when I first came to CTC and see what we had to work with. I mean, the, that language was cleared by the agency for the hearings because mm -hmm. the numbers are secret right. and they're probably still secret today, yeah. I don't know. But you know, it conveys that you can do a little math, you can figure out roughly how, um, how many that would be. But that also includes people that are not directly collecting and analyzing, right? That includes people that provide physical security and provide technical support and logisticians so in this mix sort of like a like like an army unit right you've got all kinds of folk that are supporting the people who go forward in, in the uh, combat arms so you had you had that factor but my favorite little 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 fact that I, that, um, that means something to me to give you some perspective the um, the al-qaeda unit was one that very quickly when I came to CTC was sort of my first priority and uh, we gave them everything that we could. We took personnel from other components in CTC and gave them to, but it's all a big stretch, it's like a balloon. You give from one, right. you take from another. You know, there is, the, there is a finite nature to how, much, how flexible you can be. And um, they, did a, they did just a tremendous job. I mean, honestly, I, I just am in awe of how hard they worked and how efficiently they worked and um, the contribution that they made. But to put it in perspective, and this is so American, um, the number of personnel that we had in the uh, Osama bin Laden unit doing Al-Qaeda and the amount of resources we had, money, to mm -hmm. do operations worldwide was less than the number of staff personnel in the 9-11 Commission and the money allocated for that staff in the 9-11 Commission. This is a great country, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> there's things like this. I've never, but there are a lot of things like this. Right. And, you know, it just so happened this, you know, this issue really matured very quickly and came out. You know, history would have been completely different yeah. if there had been a naval shootout in the South China Sea or something. You know, uh, so um, you have to choose wisely. But we did, we did um, um, vocally, I think, and effectively try and call attention to right. this, this threat was just a little ahead of its time. Well, I, it's in the beginning of 2001, you really began to warn the powers that be that an attack on the United States might be coming soon. Because there have been others who are saying Al-Qaeda is going to be attacking other places around the world, but you really started focusing attention on here within the United States right. during this time. And now we know uh, through some declassification that there's a lot of different what, multi-source collection that led to this, from communications intercepts to uh, human intelligence to other intelligence that's showing that Al-Qaeda was determined to Correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's all true. You can, um, uh, there's a number of this, you know, documentary um, information, at least references to it out on the internet, mm -hmm. you can find that. But one of the things that people really don't appreciate, and not too much of an issue has been made, is the human dynamic here. The number of times that we personally mm -hmm. would go to the Hill and brief senior U.S. government officials throughout this entire period, oversight committees, cabinet members, you know, uh, I began to think that was a key element of my job. I was doing it so much. Um, it, it was, um, it was um, comprehensive. It was done over a long period of time, and um, we can talk about the impact of this, but. Um, 
yeah, no, it was it was very real to us, and we attempted to make it as real as we possibly could to um, our leadership that was going to make the decisions. I mean, George Tenet's taken some grief for stuff, but it's pretty clear to me from reading everything I've read that you and he seem to be on pretty much the same page when it came to the threat from Al-Qaeda. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, he, um, he understood it. Uh, he advanced it. He made a, a public declaration, at least the CIA workforce, saying that we're at war. Um, so he understood the threat. And then as we entered the summer of 2001 and during the summer of 2001, um, you know, in meetings with him, he c clearly um, indicated he understood it, which you know culminated in uh, you know going to the White House for a non-scheduled meeting. But there was a lot going up to this point. I mean, for us, this was not some kind of a mystery, you know. Right. Like, what's going to happen? We knew it was going to happen. Right. You know, we just didn't have the details that would um, be sufficient. You know, for the law enforcement to go out and to, right. to directly counter it, but if you came up with the same threat posture, the same briefing, and this time, you'd have F-15s over the Capitol and it'd be locked down, and so it's a different time, right? Absolutely, a different perspective. Yeah, as historians, in historical hindsight is very easy to say. Like, how did you miss the like the August warning? You know, we Barbara sued. You know, was a primary author of the Bin Laden determined to attack in the United States right. August briefing. You like. It talks about New York and Washington and hijacking yeah. planes, and you're like, "How did you miss this?" Well, well this was, I mean, I've spent now 15 years sort of thinking about this now and again. For us, it's a it's very hard work, working around the clock. You put it together, and you have confidence, and you go forward with it. But for your customers who aren't steeped in this type of thing, um, it actually turns out to be very difficult for them to accept because it represents significant change. It represents allocation of resources. They're going to have to tell the press, well, how come we're curtailing aircraft? Right. We're putting, you know, the lines at the airports are longer. You know, these people vote. So you have all of this mix that the policymakers have to, um, have to deal with. But also, when it goes bad, right. you know, they're not the ones answering. You are. And you're, you're incredibly hamstrung by what you could do, but I thought it was very interesting to see how much you still tried to, for lack of a better word, preposition assets uh, beforehand, whether it was fighting to get Predator's drone armed with Hellfire missiles, which was not agreed to until, what, a week before 9-11, I believe, was when they finally had a plan to do that. Um, you, you had uh, CIA assets near Afghanistan, around Afghanistan. I guess that's one of the big reasons that we were able to respond so quickly after the fact is because a lot of your thinking and others was eventually we're going to have these assets and we're going to be able to use them so let's get them ready am right. i putting words in your mouth or no i just say about this uh this um, reported armed predator thing it's the policy of the cia that they neither confirm nor deny right so i obviously have nothing to add about that but what but actually some people put in articles in a disparaging way you know i, I said to a couple of people and someone put it in the book that you know what we're doing now before 9-11 is preparing for World War III. From a counterterrorism standpoint that's exactly what we were mm -hmm. doing. We were preparing for when this thing goes bad which we know is going to happen right. and we're going to be ready to get off the dime and do our job uh, likely in an environment where there are um, enhanced authorities and resources 
So um, not only trying to move the needle in a positive direction, we're also looking for an eye towards the future where in certain places of the world we need airlift, we need the right type of uh, operational personnel, with ethnicity and languages. Right. And so there, there are a lot of pieces of this and as you, as you might imagine, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable being unable to recall what's overt and what's well, not absolutely. You know, yeah. for, for your uh, podcast, but just say that as much as we could with the number of people that we had, we, and um, we tried to build up the ability so that we could be there firstest with the mostest, we could um, set the stage to make this an unfair fight for the U.S. military, and the purpose of that was to give distance and time for the U.S. policymakers to come to grip with this and come up with a, with, with a plan, a national plan. Right. So, you know, there's an element of uh, not even clairvoyance. It's just naturally following the intelligence picture that you've developed. So when 9-11 when happened, um, the, the closer you are to the fire, if you're in the, in the uh, Al-Qaeda section in the CTC, you know, yes. Right. You know, you have to keep yourself from saying, I told you so. Yeah. But here we go, right? Right. You, you can immediately accept it. We told you this is going to happen. So you can immediately accept it. You've been sort of planning for it. So you can do something about it. Other people weren't as fortunate. Even if you get outside into the larger CTC, there was, there was a greater, I think, um, emotional response. And then you get outside the CIA, even greater. And outside the CIA, it was, you know, people were numb. So since we were prepared, we could accept it quickly. We could deal with it. We could move out. Well, if you look at the military, have been planning for a nuclear exchange with the Soviets during the Cold War for 40 years. We've been planning to fight conventional wars for 100 years. Right. And this is an entirely different type of war, and at least someone had been thinking about how to fight it. Which well, is... it was probably, you know, I'm an American. You know, I'm not, you know, American first, the CIA guy second. But, um, you know, as an American, this is not such an unusual situation. You know, when we look at the United States military, we look at it to protect us from the worst things possible. We talked a little bit earlier about a nuclear exchange with a, a pure state. You know, that's their job, to deter things like this. There's a conventional fight, you know. Desert Storm. Right. Getting all the equipment there, the tanks. and I mean, it's, just, it's, it's brilliant. You know, that's their first job. And um, in that time frame leading up, our first job in the counterterrorism center was exactly this. So with our resources, we could move forward enough to kind of hold the position and allow them to retool it and come in. The US military had no war plan for Afghanistan from their standpoint for a good reason, because this was seen as a law enforcement issue. Right. You ask the FBI, and they're a whole different cat now. <laughs> but then they were right. all about rules and regulations and making cases and providing the evidence to prosecutors and going to court. This is not where the CTC comes from, okay? Right. We're in the preemptive, you know, over the horizon, identify it so that it can be countered, so innocent men, women, and children can be protected. The people like smile, it sounds kind of corny and noble. No, that's the real mission, right. you know, to deter, to disrupt and defeat terrorists so that they don't hurt innocent people. That's, that's what the whole game is about. And so, you know, the military, you know, those days couldn't be expected to cover everything all the time. And so now they have the shift. Now we have JSOC, the envy of the world. So they've, they've made the shift right. pretty well. And uh, they're extremely capable, I think. 
something where, God forbid, like this happen again, you'd have a different response. Right. You have a military-led jack-in-the-box, here we come, as opposed to um, the Central Intelligence Agency with what eventually deployed uh, 110 officers, which is the size of a U.S. infantry company. Right. I mean, if you said the, if you said the U.S. military, why don't you go against the country, make all the Taliban cities fall, you know, with 110 guys, which were reinforced by 300 plus military special operators? I mean, they're the big stick. Make no right. no bones about it. And on top of this, was the, the people would say this is not an invasion. This was coming to the aid of people that were prepared to fight for their own liberty. Right. And that's kind of what the CIA does. You know, it's not, we don't, we, we help others, we assist. It was a paramilitary action versus a military yes, action. Yes, it was. First and foremost. That's correct. I'm glad you brought up the FBI because I think there's a, a lot of serious misconception about prior to 9 11, the, these agencies not having the ability to work together. I think, yeah. you know, the 9 11 Commission and just kind of the, the urban. Or that I was going to say urban legends. It's like conventional wisdom seems to be that no one was talking to anybody no. before 9/11. But the CTC seemed to have a pretty good relationship. Well, it's not only it's not only that. It um, I've heard I've heard influential senators state this as a fact. Right. As we all know, the FBI doesn't talk to the CIA, and the CIA doesn't talk to the FBI. Well, there's always room for improvement. That's for sure. Right. But you know the the fundamental principle from certainly the CIA end and the CTC end is this is what we do. It's really complicated. Your audience probably wants to get out a pen and paper and write this down. We collect information, right? We analyze it, and then we give it to our customers. <laughs> In this case, it would be the FBI. This is our job, right? Okay. So I mean, we're, that that's what we do. Now, do we get it there? Quickly enough? Do we get it all of it there to the right place? You know, you can, you can, uh, you can argue about that. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but we, we do it, you know, the best we can. Also, in those days, we didn't have a common computer system, mm -hmm. so um, we had what some some comedian described called the, the hostage exchange, where we had a senior CTC officer right. go to the FBI and a senior FBI officer coming out. I had a great one, Ed Worthington, and so. Um, if you want to get something there, lickety split, it wasn't very lickety split because you had a CIA computer and an FBI right. computer, and you had all this. We had—I uh, forget the number—I think um, six FBI personnel in the uh, Al Qaeda unit. So you know what human beings can do—they were—they were trying to do as much as they could, um, but there's no accounting for um, the lack of an efficient. Um, communications highway to get all the stuff that you would like there. So let's be perfectly honest, there are also sometimes you come up with, I've always had a great relationship with the FBI. I mean, they're great guys. Some people, you know, have not, and, and vice versa. So, you know, that can slow up a real equitable exchange. But that's a human condition. The Congress can't pass any law that says you've got to love this person no matter what. You know? But well, they can try. I mean, they can. But they, they, well, they can. In yeah. fact, now I expect they will. Right. But it still will work, okay? We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. 
Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. bring us up to immediately before 9-11. I, I, want, I think a lot of people wonder in the days leading up to, I mean, talking about a 9-8, 9-9, 9-10, mm-hmm. was there any warning intelligence, any, did Al-Qaeda go dark? Did it frighten you? Were things different than what you had been seeing throughout the summer? Well, there, there was a lot. But when you said 9-8, 9-9, I don't recall anything specifically confined to those three days that we hadn't seen before. It wasn't a continuation of indications and warning. But their um, Al-Qaeda's behavior, clearly to us, and this was identified months before, it was one of the prime motivators of our repeated briefings to senior officials, including the, to the White House, that was a very important one on uh, July the 10th, was that was the, was the pattern of actions when contrasted with the intelligence that we were collecting, right. human and technical, and then watching what they do, and it was basically like scattering, you know, various forms of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you um, if you're the um, if you're the FBI, and you see uh, a pure state enemy's embassy in Washington D.C., all of a sudden, with no warning. They all empty out, get on their plane, and go back to their capital with all their files on fire. In the FBI, they call this a clue, okay? Yeah. <laughs> this is not good, okay? So we're seeing a lot of things like that. Right. You know? And so go forward with that. You know something's coming. We know their, their objective was the destruction of the United States. We had a lot of um, human and technical intelligence saying that um, they're expecting a great multiple operations. And so, you know, there was there was an awful lot there, and it was it was coming, and and my people knew it. And there's a there's a there's a favorite someone picked up. You know, every, usually these things come out. So I remember that we had a staff meeting in the morning where all of my lieutenants were there. I had a very good relationship with these people. You know, a situation like this, and we'd worked before. Like just you know, great officers, and they did a fantastic job before and after. And I remember the, the meeting started, and we were going along in, in my office, and one of them said, um, you know, Chief, we've been thinking. This is kind of like the captain on the ship before the mutiny, you know? <laughs> uh, Sir, I've been talking to the crew, and uh, I said, yeah, the, well, thinking's good. Yeah. So so what? And he, he said, well, we're just thinking we're going to really get struck bad. Uh, you know, lots of people are going to die. Uh, we're of course going to get blamed. Who else is there? Right. There's no one else on this block. Right. We're the only ones, you know, doing this. Right? It's just like soccer. If you, you you don't get a red card unless you're playing, right? We're the only ones who do. Right. 
So their clever idea, of course, they were smiling and they weren't serious. But you know, in, in these things, there's a, an underlayment of honesty to it. I said, you know, we've all been here more than two years. We should all put in for transfer and get out <laughs> while the getting's good and let a new team come right. in. So I, knew, I really knew they weren't serious, but I sort of had to play like it serious as well. First, practically, we can't find people to replace you in such a short period of time, practically. But the other thing, I mean, you have to look at it. Who better than us to ride this down? Yeah. I mean, so this validation of you know, this is coming. We've been in this job. We, we know what we're doing, certainly more than anyone else. Right. And when the country is struck, they're going to want you know, the Central Intelligence uh, Agency up and going forward fast, and we can do that. And uh, so that's what we should do. And they're also, absolutely. But there was, a, there was an appreciation. This, was, this is not the sort of, you know, like everyone you know, surprised and, you know, where were they? Right? That wasn't our experience. Right. Ours was very different. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't. It's it's the, uh, the Greek, I love the Greek one that knows what's coming in the future, Cassandra. It's yeah. very much the Cassandra. Well, you all know it's coming. Nobody else does. You're warning everybody about right. it, but no but one's listening the, to you. So you prepare. You do it as best you can yeah. to convince them. But then as you go on, we spent quite a while preparing. So this this comparatively micro force right. compared to DOD could do its job and step up and go forward and be kind of the tip of the spear until, you know, the mass of the United States could come behind right. it and buy time for our decision makers. So let's look at the day of, because I think that there's a lot of people out there who, who want to kind of, as much as you can, to bring us into sure. the CTC. You were there on the morning of 9-11. When the first plane hit, were you getting the same reports everybody else was, that it was a prop plane, an accident, something just oops, you know, on the day when there shouldn't have been any oops because it was perfectly clear, and, and, or did you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It's always kind of like when I was a boy, I guess I was 13, was the day that President Kennedy was shot. And for my generation, it's where were you when President Kennedy was shot? Perhaps for yours, it's more like where were you at 9-11, what were you doing? And I don't remember anything up until the first plane going into the tower, and it started with, my office manager coming into my office and say, hey, you know, call for a, uh, a private aircraft flew into one of the Twin Towers and it's on the TV screen. I had a TV sort of on the wall near the ceiling, kind of on, mm -hmm. fluctuate between CNN, Canadian TV, BBC, you know, kind of rotating. So <clears throat> I looked up in this little black hole and being a former pilot, private pilot, I thought, this guy must be the world's worst <laughs> pilot. And this beautiful blue sky, clear visibility. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, how could you, you know? But I have other things to think about, right? right? So we didn't pay much attention to. And, and interestingly enough, um, at that time, the former uh, former captain of the USS Cole, um, Commander Leopold, um, came by to to pay a courtesy call because we had uh, my, um, my my operations chief, Hank Crumpton, and some of the guys when the coal was struck, immediately went out. To the ship to facilitate their interaction with the Yemenis and mm -hmm. facilitate the introduction of the FBI special agents in the country, and so they got to know each other. So he was up seeing somebody else in the agency, and so he has to come by and see me, sort of impromptu, to say hey, thanks for you know your guys and helping us out. And all that. So we were sitting there and chatting, and and uh, my phone rang, and it was a guy that I knew from the Angola War. He was a real expert on paramilitary things and rockets and planes and 
and it was um, on a outside commercial line, which I don't get any calls on that. Mm-hmm. Besides, people trying to sell insurance, right? And stuff, you know, <laughs> so the phone rings. This, so hit it, and the guy identifies himself, and I know him very well. And he said, uh, "Hey, chief, I'm up in New York. We we have a problem." I said, "Okay, what's the problem?" He said, "I was watching the 737-like civilian airliner fly into the tower." Well, well, now the hair has started to go back right. under my neck now because I thought it was, you know, a, uh, like a Cessna, a Cessna 172 or something, right. and now we're going to a 737-like commercial, 737-like commercial airliner. And he said the problem was I was watching. He said I was watching the control surfaces on the aircraft, and the pilot flew the plane into the tower. Wow! And then he used an expletive deleted. And said, we've been struck. Who's in the other tower? I'm evacuating my position. So hung up the phone. I knew I knew in my heart exactly where we were, that right. this was the start. So I said to um, to Commander Leopold, I said, you know, it's very nice to meet you, and I have to cut this short because we have to go to war now. And, you know, get the kind of look like, I'm so glad I'm not you. Right. And so off we went and began our day and immediately went up to the seventh floor. And there was a room full of people. And uh, this CIA director, George Senate, was there. And I came in and, you know, the crowd kind of parted. And there was an empty chair for me. When it's bad, <laughs> you don't have to fight your way yeah. to that chair, okay? They're, all they're, they're happy to have you. Yeah. It's human, human nature. So we sat down, but then, not unsurprisingly, the security people rushed in and they said, oh, we have to move. This is no good. Because we yeah, had 3,000 planes still in the air at that point. Well, One yeah, but we had had threat right? intelligence, yeah. you know, collected previously that they wanted to fly planes in the CIA headquarters. Yes. So they said, no, we can't do that because, you know, plane flies and the you know, building will collapse. All you people will die. We've got to move. So we moved downstairs to the, the ground floor conference room down there. And then we started, we sat down, and they decided that, well, what wasn't good for the seventh floor isn't going to be good on the ground floor. We're going to get crushed by the rubble. So they go, you know. So we went to an outbuilding, and we started uh, our, our day there. Well, and you, you, you never left. I mean, that, this is something where you were asked to leave, and you, you stayed at the yeah, helm of I mean, the CTC at this point. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting uh, in the, um, the building we were in, you know, the TVs were going, there were reports of, there was, you know, a plane had flown in the State Department, a bomb had gone off, and there were various phone calls uh, underway, conference calls and whatnot. And, and, it, and it was prudent at the time, though um, the director said, okay, we're going to have to evacuate the headquarters building, the compound. And so, I said, well, CTC needs an exemption, because all our computers are here, we have a role to play in a crisis like this, and so well, they could die. Said, well, then we'll just have to die. Yeah. And he goes, okay. And so, as correctly, the workforce were coming out the building, going back in, and all all those CTC people that I dealt with were were all there, you know, manning their their positions. They knew what their duty was. So, our initial tax then was to figure out um, what happened, right? Who did it? What's next? Well, I was going to ask you, when did the attitude switch from a protective footing, making sure there were no further attacks, to an offensive war footing, let's go get the bad guys? Um, yeah, how do I characterize this? It was, it was simultaneous. Okay. That's what this job yeah. really became so interesting so very fast. 
because you had you know a constellation of things you all had to do right now. So everyone was sort of triaging. And what made it work was the quality of the workforce. The lieutenants that I knew, very good, we'd work together. You know, we, we didn't have to have meetings. Uh, information was exchanged in phrases. We all knew what each other meant. And um, so, you know, what happened, who did it, what's next? The next, what's next part goes on to this very day, doesn't it? Right. I mean, and so now you've got every friend we have on the planet, you know, communicating what they know. So now you have to, you have to field all this information looking for the nuggets that are useful. Right. So this took, tr this took on tremendous proportions, which represented um, a, a huge increase in the numbers of personnel. We went from, you know, maybe three infantry companies to a brigade. Right. I mean, and this is very, as you know, from your military experience, to to absorb that many people that quickly in a crisis situation where everybody wants you. Congress wants you to brief them right now. I mean, right. White House, you, you have to just, I mean, it's like a, everyone has their job and they have to go out and do it. It's impossible just to be, get out of my way and let me do my job because you're constantly. You're constantly, and then you have to triage everything because yeah. that guy's thing isn't working. So now you're going to have to reorder what you're doing right. to, to compensate for that. Well, and I'm sorry to interrupt. Historically, yeah. we know that when United 93 went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, that was basically the end of 9-11. But we had no idea. Well, no, no. In fact, we had, the, a... we had the other indication that this was not the end. That's what I was this saying. Was we thought there one. was going to be a 9-12, a right. 9-13, maybe well, WMDs. Sure. Well, we had, we had indications of that, but it's like the, it's like the Navy crews on the, the, the destroyers near Saipan in World War II, you know? The first wave of kamikazes, you go, geez, I hope that's it. Yeah. You know, well, over the second wave and the third, and there was we had a good reason to believe that. So you had that process. The the whole what what is next part. If you can figure out what's next ahead of time, you can preempt it, right? So if you have enough detail, turn it over to law enforcement, foreign security service, and they can deal with it. You know, you, your job is now done as right. much as you can. Try and collect more, but there you go. At the same time, while you're doing this, you've asked a very complicated question. I'm giving you a simplistic answer, yeah, right. but Perfect. so that's that's one main track. The other main track was um, early afternoon. Um, uh, I was with George Tennant, and you know we were exchanging information. What to work? I mean, it's very. It's almost like uh, bees. You know, with their antenna, they come together briefly, blah, 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 yeah. and they move on. It was all like that. Yeah. You know, we've, we we this is our career. We know what we're doing. Right. We don't have to spend a lot of time. So, what exactly do you mean by that, Chief? I mean, it's all. It's like combat. Right. There's another point. In a situation like that, we're not bureaucrats. Okay. Don't confuse us with a Washington bureaucracy. We're having to deal with the Washington bureaucracy as we gear up as a combat unit to go forward. There's no difference between these guys going forward and getting ready to do that as you would have at an army base sending forward special forces or infantry mm -hmm. company. I mean, same, same type of thing. So uh, early afternoon on September 11th is almost an aside. I remember being with George Tennant. I think we were in the hall. And he over his shoulder he said, uh, update the Afghan war plan. And update the worldwide attack matrix. Have it ready for opening business tomorrow. Mm. I mean, imagine all the stuff going on. Right. I don't know if you really can, <laughs> but it was like one of the you know, you know to yourself, I said, I, I shall never see something like this again. Right. I won't see it again. And, 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 and be in this uh, position. So we did that. And the guys that did, that were specifically um, working on that was the head of the Al Qaeda unit, um, Rich Blake. And his 
Deputy Hendricks, they worked it up, we went over it, blah, blah, blah. we've been working on this before, right? Preparation, right? It, you know, being prepared is very important because when you're prepared, you have a planning process, mm -hmm. you have a preparation base, so when you have to improvise, which, which is the agency's really strong suit, being agile and improvising, you can do it with far greater effectiveness. You don't want to start improvising right out of the box if you can help it. So um, we had this all, all done in the morning. And so on the 12th, uh, we first uh, briefed the director on both things. People always talk about the Afghan war plan, but the worldwide attack matrix, in my view, was arguably more complicated. Because I forget the number, you're talking about projection, uh, operational capability in uh, 85 countries simultaneously. Mm. You know, planes, trains, automobiles, people, kit. I mean, think about it. Things that would normally take weeks to approve with committees and everything right. are now like rolling, you know, you know, the gun tubes are coming out of the shelters left and right. I mean, it's, and it's all to their credit. I really can't take any for myself because, you know, most of the time I was just presented, hey, here, this is what we got from, it's good to make good, go. Right. You know, like, it was combat. You know, people don't, you know, and, and people really shouldn't think about that part of what we were doing as, you know, government bureaucracy. Right. You know, bureaucrats in seats eating donuts and long lunches. <laughs> this, this is like the army. Right. You know, it's much more like that. Um, so um, when we briefed your attendant after we were all done, I remember saying, you know, in the worst case, we could lose as many to 40, 60 men killed or captured. This was eventually out of 110 people. You know, to George Tennant's everlasting credit, he was chewing on his unlit cigar and thinking about it. His mind was going a million miles an hour. I was waiting. What's it going to be? Made his decision, took out his cigar. He said, okay, do it. Um, you know, the CIA is not like the military. I mean, we spend an ordinary amount of time and effort to protect one person's life. Right. right. We're not used to casualties like this, even the potential of casualties like this. Uh, and so to make a, uh, a call like that was a gutsy one, and everyone from yeah. there on out, the president was, they all thought about it and said, Go. So from that point on, we were moving along, you know. And the, the sacrifice of the agency has been extraordinary during the, the war on terror. I mean, if you go to Langley, if you get a chance to go, listeners, at some point, and you, the stars on the, the memorial wall and the book, a lot of the names aren't in there, but you can see how many people working for CIA have lost their lives. And other than Vietnam, basically, you know, it's yeah. that there's, there's no time period that anyone comes anywhere close to the last 15 years. That's true, and I wish it was. I wish there was a, a short-term end to this. Yeah. There's a great organization called the CIA Officers Memorial Fund, where we raise monies to uh, educate the children of yeah. the officers that are that are lost overseas. And um, it really, um, for some reason, it really took me aback. I hadn't thought of it this way, but it really shocked me. I was out of the out of the agency, and I was in the private sector. And, trying to help raise your money for this thing. And, it's, uh, and because of all of the gifts, we've been able to educate all of the children of these officers. You wow. know, if you can get in Princeton, we pay. Wow. You know? I mean, no questions asked. Is there a website that we, for that? Is it just Google it? Yeah, or? you can just Google it. Okay. It's called the CIA Officers Memorial Fund. Okay. And uh, you can, if, and if your listeners are willing to contribute, that would be 
that would really be great. We, we owe it to these people to have their, their children um, educated. And, you know, officers now serving take great comfort in that. You know, a lot of these guys are just recently out of the SEALs or Delta or out right. of college and whatnot. They don't have a lot of money. And newly married, and uh, it's a great, they've said it's a great comfort to them that they have such a thing. But what I was going to tell you when I started this was, um, it really took me aback and when the uh, president of this told me, he said, well, <clears throat> you know, um, we're trying to collect as much money as we can because, you know, we actually have an estimated actuarial table anticipating wow. the number of young men and women working for the CIA that will, that will die serving their country from here on out. We figure how many children they have and how much money we need to collect. And for me, that was such a sobering experience that not only is it not over, we aren't even, I don't even know if we're at the end of the beginning. Right. This is going to go on for a bit. Yep. Let me ask you about um, the, the raid on Osama bin Laden, the, the, the Navy SEAL Team 6 raid at Abbottabad that finally took him out. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you the trite question about how did it make you feel, though you're welcome to talk about that. Did you have a hint before? Did you know about it? it was I know you're out of government at that point. It would have been kind of somewhat inappropriate to tell you, but off the record, of course it's not off the record. But yeah, no, <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. And from my standpoint, it's, it's, it's not important. You know, I, I had my day, and they have the new team doing that now, and they did a great job. No, I didn't. And actually, I don't know anything about it besides what I see on TV and yeah. how people write about it, you know. Was that an end of an era for you? Did you feel catharsis? Did you just, was it just another day? No, yeah. it didn't. It didn't. It was just routine business the same way that in the first week of December, when we went into a landlocked country that was the graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, within under nine weeks, we were through all the Taliban cities. Yeah. All Al Qaeda was were killed, captured, running for the border, across the border. You know, that was not an inconsequential feat under the circumstances and how it was done. Neither I nor any of the people I work with. There was no triumphalism. You wouldn't even in hindsight, you'd think, wouldn't you? People go, you know, we really, you know, did good you know, here, didn't we? Scott there was campaign. nothing. No. Nothing at all. Because everybody knew. This was not the end. Yeah, we're just getting started. Right. So it was just now we're we're in this process. We're engaged, and um, we didn't have the luxury, certainly, to congratulate ourselves to really ponder. You know how big a deal was that? This is our mission. Go in, take out Al Qaeda, so they don't hurt anybody else. So that's. You, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. It's not like a football game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheering at There's the end. No spike none, in the ball. None yeah. of that. None of that. None. Very serious. So you're, you're, the people now that have come after you, the current CTC director has to deal with a world uh, somewhat more complicated with Al-Qaeda splintering now into many, many different groups, whether it's AQAP or core Al-Qaeda, and then ISIS and a lot of Boko Haram, and those all existed before. As an outsider, but somebody with the kind of, you know, massive amounts of experience that you have, the war against ISIS seems to be going relatively well on the battlefield, right? They're being pushed back. But how, what advice would you give to the current CTC or the current FBI or the NCTC or anybody about stopping things like these lone wolf attacks in Bernardino, Orlando, or stopping the next 9-11? I mean, 
I know you don't have classified information anymore, but just kind of just based on what you see from your perspective, are things going well? Are things going badly? Are things in a position where uh, it's just more of the same? Well, you've, you've asked a lot of questions. I would just start kind of simplistically yeah. that, you know, um, I think 9-11 kicked off a new era for the United States. What uh, was a um, quick, um, quote, victory, unquote, in Afghanistan as a result, in part, since I was responsible of, uh, you know, divine intervention. I do believe that. Um, the loss of life and the, and the success in time uh, was, was extraordinary. Um, but the policymakers chose to stay. Uh, and with that come a lot of um, cascading issues. I don't remember that being the plan, to tell you the truth. Right. I remember the plan was, this is punitive, we go in, we take out Al-Qaeda. Um, I recall the, the discussion about a residual force being left, kind of like what they have now, uh, to do counterterrorism, to do some training, to play a counterterrorist role, and leave. Right. A country with a, um, such a low literacy rate and all that, that would benefit from you know an international conference uh, investing money in their infrastructure and uh, moving on. I never known if this was the plan. No one ever told me, and I think I would have known since we came up with the plan. Right. So uh, it was not as I said uh, I think on TV once. It was not to assure that little girls could go to school. Right. It wasn't to assure that to set up a, a judicial. This is punitive. Go in there and take these guys out. Happy to accept their surrender, come up. But if they're determined to fight to the death, we aim to please. Well, that, part was, of the, that was the objective. So yeah. this, this, the, the, that changed into a prolonged struggle where we invested tremendous blood of our young people and money. And um, I just think it was, um, it was a little too far, a little too far to go. In my view, and you got a dog in this fight. Your son fought he, in Afghanistan. He did. He was a he was an airborne ranger, army officer. He did uh, two tours in the mountains of Afghanistan, and uh, they were when they weren't snowed in, fighting every day. Right. And um, I just don't um, I just don't see how that was necessary. Um, but we've actually begun from the wrong end. If you're asking, you know, if you make me king for a day or you know if Hillary Clinton or Trump wanted to come up with an answer that made some sense in terms of counterterrorism to me it would have been it would be that you know you have to project from the in out and the the greatest threat we have in the area of counterterrorism is to have our own our own population or those in our country radicalized right that's bigger than anything else overseas you know Foreign governments come and they go. And uh, what was the British said? There are no permanent f friends, just permanent interests. Well, we're responsible for ourselves first. Right. Take care of our own people. And, you know, if you have a dollar, I'd spend most of it making sure that those individuals and communities that are at risk of feeling 
isolated or are vulnerable to radicalization to just be addressed. This is really, really important. I hate to crow, not to know this, but when I came to the Counterterrorism Center, we actually plotted all this out. When I first came in 1999, how's this going to go? This is where we ended up. Yeah. We didn't have Iraq, that's for sure. Right. But yeah, most of it, we got just right to a T. And um, where it ended up was um, self-radicalized Americans. We, we, we euphemistically called it the California Garage Band effect. You know, three bubbas get together in a garage and learning how to play surfer music. They're, they're preparing for a terrorist act because they've been radicalized. Right. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to train. They can go on the internet. Uh, so this is, I think, a greater threat to us in the field of counterterrorism than the deployment of legions overseas. I think if, uh, if, if you, the next most important thing is to deal with countries that have the, the will to resist terrorism. They have, if they have the will, help them with their capacity. Right. But it's pay to play, you know? Um, it's like the French when they came to help the, help the Americans in their revolution. They weren't coming here for liberty and equality. They came here to make sure that the Americans would fight and they could win. And once they knew that, they helped them. There should be a little bit of that. Your, uh, your, your yearning for freedom has got to be greater than my yearning for your freedom. Right. Okay? So, you know, all pigs are not equal in this deal, you know? Uh, maybe you're going to have to wait 50 years or 100 years and, you know, we'll come back to you. So there's that, there's that element, um, working equitably, productively with um, those that see things the way we do. Uh, our traditional allies, and those who haven't been our allies in the past, because you wait long enough, who knows, they could be an ally in the future. That's the second thing. And the third thing would be, you know, this is a long-term game. We can't fix everything at the same time. And I think the idea that uh, fostering democracy over all things overseas is seriously misguided. Right. I've never understood it. And when I've talked to uh, those instances where I've had a kind of a frank conversation with leaders in the Middle East and some heads of state, you know, they really ask, do you, do you have any idea of what you're saying and the impact on the region? I think our ability, I think our objective should be stability, right? Democracy can come, but stability first. And lastly, any president that deploys American combat forces, American conventional combat infantry, there better be a gunfight. I don't want to hear any more talking about our men and women in uniform, Nation diplomats, yeah. right? Gunfight. Right. These young people are fit and they're trained for that. So if there's not going to be a gunfight and you can't identify who they're meant to fight, you should send JSOC to the CIA or the Los Angeles Police Department, somebody, but not our young fighting men and women until you've got an enemy. When you've got an enemy, they'll do just fine. It's got to be identified, got to be pretty clear cut. Is that kind of waffling in any of no, this? Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Well, Kofor Black, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It was an, an, an incredible conversation. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. I've come to the museum before. And I can't wait for my grandchildren to get old enough <laughs> to come here and really appreciate all of the great exhibits and experiences that can be had. And I, I also thank your audience for having the, the interest to listen on these kinds of issues. 
what they think and what they say is very important. And the uh, CIA Memorial Fund. Uh, CIA, CIA officers. officers. I'm sorry, this is this was off the top of my head. No, I should have brought the. What, no, but if you Google it's, CIA officers Memorial Fund, you can contribute to that. And please think about doing that. Um, it's one of the one of the the real ways that you can support um, the people that are overseas in harm's way, knowing that no matter what happens, their children will be educated. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.